Well, Jesus said, we just sang a number of songs, by the way. I was thinking about this. We, we, we sang a hymn that said, uh, that, 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 that asked the Lord to, for, for blessing. And it, in the context of this morning's message, I thought of Jesus' statement in Matthew 5.10, blessed are you when you are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. I wonder if that was in the mind of the hymn writer when he requested the Lord's blessing. Sometimes persecution comes from the secular authorities. Often it comes from the religious realm, and that was certainly the case for Peter and the apostles in the early days of the church. It was also the case for a man by the name of John Bunyan. I passed out his autobiography last week. I think Andrew Farley got it, and he'll have it read by June, and if you're interested in reading it after him, just go wrap him on the back and, and tell him. Bunyan was a pastor in a day when the Church of England levied what was called the Act of Uniformity. All clergy in England were required to give, I quote, unfeigned consent and assent to everything that was in the Book of Common Prayer. In addition to that, any church assembly where the prayer book was not used was considered illegal and punishable by imprisonment and even death. Those pastors, roughly 2,000 of them are called in church history dissenters or nonconformists. Those pastors who could not give assent to all that was in the Book of Common Prayer were driven from their pulpits. They were often imprisoned, and many of them were in fact killed for their convictions. John Bunyan was imprisoned. He was a dissenter. And while he was preaching to a small congregation at Samsel, Bunyan was arrested on November 12, 1660, and he was hurried to the Bedford Jail. One historian recounts, quote, one can hardly realize the miseries experienced when pious men and women were taken to such dens and thrust in as Bunyan was with the most depraved kind of felons. After about seven weeks of imprisonment, he was tried before Justice Keeling, who pronounced him guilty of not submitting to the state church. He heard the judge declare, you must be back to prison and there lie for three months. And then if you do not submit to go to the church and to hear divine service and to leave off your preaching, you must be banished from the realm. And after that, if you be found in this realm without special license from the king, you must stretch by the neck, I tell you plainly. Bunyan responded by saying, if I were out of prison today, I would preach the gospel again tomorrow by the help of God, end quote. Bunyan described the parting from his wife and children. See, we look at these guys and we, we hear these accounts of history and we, we tend not to put ourselves there and to linger long enough to think through the implications of this kind of thing Bunyan described the parting from his wife and children as, quote, the pulling of flesh from the bones. I saw I was a man who was pulling down his house upon his head, or I'm sorry, upon the head of his wife and children. He had particular compassion upon his little daughter, who was blind by the name of Mary, and he said, oh, the thoughts of the hardships I thought my poor blind one might go under that would break my heart into pieces. Bunyan's imprisonment stretched beyond those three months all the way out to 12 years. And they continued to incarcerate him because he would not deny the lordship of Christ and the ultimate authority of the Lord over his life, he would not cease preaching, he would not accept the licensure that the state commanded him to have and his family was ultimately forced to live upon the charity that those in his church provided. I wonder how you would have done under those circumstances. 
Last week I said that, that COVID-19 was a, a gift, really, to the church in some ways. And I think your response in COVID might reflect, perhaps, your, your response under Bunyan's circumstances. You know, all he had to do was give up preaching. He could have gone to some other realm. All he had to do was stop meeting at his church with his little band of congregants and take them all over to the big church at the end of the block where they would have, uh, you know, give, been given the stamp, stamp of approval. We've been with Peter and the apostles in the day of their defiance. They too suffered shame for Christ's sake. They too rejoiced in it. And as I've been saying to you for the last few weeks, I think we need to be ready. And I preach with that aim in mind. I want us to be equipped. I want us, the elders want us to be ready. And history tells us we should be ready. Recent history tells us we should be ready. But most important, the Bible tells us that we should be ready. And so I want to pull over here on the heels of Acts 3 to 5 and think a little more carefully about the issue of Christian defiance. And I mean that in the good sense, in the rightful sense of Christian defiance, just as we've seen in Peter and the apostles and just as we see it many places throughout the scriptures. I actually have been reading a few books in preparation for all of this, and I'd like to recommend two of them this morning to you. The, the first is authored by Nathan Boozness and James Coates. It's entitled, God versus Government, Taking a Biblical Stand When Christ and Compliance Collide. Boosnitz is a professor at the Master's Seminary, and he is also a, a pastor at Grace Community Church. James Coates, you may know the name, or if not, the incident. He was the Canadian pastor who was imprisoned during COVID for their church's unwillingness to stop meeting. It's an excellent treatment of the subject with a detailed history of all that was going on both at Grace Community Church and at Grace Life Church in Edmonton. The second book is entitled Caesar and the Church, a biblical study of church government. I'm sorry, of the government and church. It is authored by Pastor Adam Forsyth. He's the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Burbank, California. It's a very brief but very helpful treatment um, we actually put a number of them out on the spinner, and I told you last week, we're, we're aiming to get you to read and to read more and more and more. And so we're actually subsidizing these books, not in full, but in part. They're cheaper here than they are on Amazon. We would encourage you to buy a copy. I think they're selling for 10 bucks. I'm essentially borrowing Forsyth's outline today because I found it so simple and so helpful and so clear. Charles told me that when he was in seminary, Steve Lawson said pastors are just a band of thieves. And so it is. <laughs> Milk many cows and churn your own butter. Somebody once told me. Good counsel. So, with no further ado, let's move forward here this morning, we're going to consider some foundational principles, very foundational, basic principles, what are really scriptural assumptions that inform our relationship to the various authorities that we have in our lives, civil authorities, ecclesiastical authorities, familial authority, workplace authorities, whatever. When we're talking about government in general, we're fundamentally talking about the exercise of authority. God is a God of authority. He is a God of order. He is a God of structure. He is a God who regulates things and governs things. He is not a God of confusion. He is not a God who simply set things in motion and stepped out of the way and said, see what you guys can do with it. God, if I could put it this way, is fundamentally opposed to anarchy, to disorder and chaos and 
disarray and every man doing what is right in his own eyes. And you can see it in everything that he does. He's structured and orderly and intentional. He has a plan and he brings it to pass and nothing happens, the scriptures teach, apart from his decree. Every sphere of life is governed authoritatively. Even the Godhead, 1 Corinthians 11, tells us that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, though being co-equal in every respect, God, still there is a functional authority structure, the Son submitting to his Father and the Spirit submitting to the Father and the Son. Mankind has never been much for authority. We challenge it, we defy it, we reject it. We question it, we mock it. We are authority phobic. Frankly, we're very attracted actually to the thought of being the one in authority. We're just not much allured to the thought of being the one under authority, right? But beloved, I hope we never follow downstream with our culture, that we never become anti-authoritarian, anti-authority. Why? Because authority is a gift from God. And it seems foolish really to even have to say that, but in a day when our culture has swallowed the liberal lie that mankind is essentially good, and if you just defund authority, everything would get along swimmingly, That is foolishness. Mankind is not basically good and basically submissive and basically willing to get along peacefully and at unity. Mankind is not like that at all. And our culture says that authority is basically bad and at best unnecessary. And this is why we need to go back to the basics. So this week, I just want to consider really four broad biblical principles for understanding the issue of authority. They're very basic principles. They're fundamental, as I've said. They're essential, though, to our understanding of the question of the relationship of church and state. We cannot begin with that question until we deal with this one. What is authority and how is it expressed rightfully in this world. Well, we'll come back to that topic or this topic really next week. We'll consider things more practically, how the Christian and the church should respond when God and government collide. But this morning we're going to begin right here with the issue of authority. And our first point is this, that all authority, our first principle is this, that all authority belongs to God. Maybe we should think, first of all, about the issue of authority. What is it? And I would give you two words. What is authority? Basically, it is right and it is might. It is the right to be able to do something, and it is the might to be able to carry it out. So authority can be summed up as one's right to do a certain thing and the power to do it. And we typically associate that kind of thing, don't we, with the concept of sovereignty. Humanly speaking, someone who has sovereign authority would be a king, for example. They possess the right to rule over their kingdom, and they possess that right along with it, the power to bring their will to pass militarily. So when we assert then that God has all authority, what we mean, what the Bible means, is that he alone possesses absolute right, absolute freedom to do whatever he pleases. God has the right to do as he wills, and ultimately he is omnipotent to effect whatever he wills. And that, again, is within the confines of his nature. We know the Bible says that God cannot lie. He does not have the power to do that or the right to do it because he cannot do it. 
but within the confines of his nature, he has all authority and all right and all power to bring whatever he wills to pass. And beloved, you needn't, if you are a Christian, be threatened by that reality. The fact that God has all authority is a doctrine worth nestling into because he is good. He is wise. He is a God of love. And we should be grateful that all authority rests in him. You might remember the famous quote by the 19th century English historian Lord Acton. He said this, all power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now in the context that I've been in when people have said that to me or I've said it to others, everybody stands around and just nods. I tell you that I can understand what Lord Acton says in light of a historian of human history. But what he says there is patently false. All authority resides in God, and there is no corruption in him. There is nothing in him that, that is corrupted absolutely because he holds on to absolute authority, not at all. He is altogether good. He alone created everything. And just like everything that you have created in your life, and someone says, did you, did you, did you make that pottery bowl? And, and you say, yes, it's mine, right? Isn't that the way we do it? You build a house, for your family, and you say, that house is mine. It does not belong to anybody else. So it is with God that he created everything, and therefore he is the owner of everything. Pluto, Venus, and every other planet out there, all the myriads and the myriads and the myriads and the myriads of stars and galaxies, they're his you were created by him. You're his. Your children are his. The materials that built your house, they're his. He owns everything because everything is from him. Listen, listen to Colossians 1.16. For in him, referring to Christ, all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, those things you can see visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and what? For him. All things belong to God. Everything is his. He has right to it all. And he also sovereignly controls all things. He, he not only has the right to all things, but he's got power to affect all things. The scriptures teach us that he knows the beginning and he knows the end and he knows everything in between. Why? Well, because he ordained it all. Listen to Isaiah 46, 10, <clears throat> 10 excuse me. Declaring, speaking of himself, he's a God who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my counsel will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. No one can thwart his will. No one can frustrate God. No one can frustrate his purposes. Psalm 115 and verse 3, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. God has fixed the times and the epochs. He establishes every beginning. He brings everything to its determined end. There is nothing and no one outside the realm of his sovereign authority. Everything and everyone is subject to him. And therefore, his authority is not to be rivaled in your affections. 
He is Lord of all, and he deserves our allegiance and our loyalty exclusively. He is foremost. And his authority cannot be evaded because he asserts his authority over all. He demands not, not just some money on Sunday or, 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 or maybe a church attendance most of the weeks of the year. No, he says, you are to love me with what? All of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's nothing left. For you are not your own, the scriptures teach. His authority cannot be questioned either because there is no one higher than he. The clay has no authority over the potter, none. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar had to come to realize in our Bible reading this morning. Again, I'll just remind you of verses 34 and 35 of Daniel 4 when Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom. Remember, this was the man who was up on his deck looking over his kingdom, saying, behold, look what I've created by the the wisdom and the glory of my authority. It is that same man who is now saying, God's dominion is an everlasting dominion, and God's kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. I think he would have included himself at that point. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Well, in the Older Testament, Yahweh is declared to be the creator and sovereign over all. In the Newer Testament, it is Yahweh incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is declared the sovereign over all. And though it may not look like it, Because the wickedness of this world that seems to just run rampant, we understand by faith that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is not dead and buried somewhere in the Middle East. He is a risen and living king. He rules over all. He has sole possession of every last bit of authority anywhere in the universe. Jesus bluntly asserted, did he not, that all authority, not some, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And ultimately, the government of the universe, beloved, is not a democratic republic. It is a monarchy. It is a, yeah, we better be careful of how critical we are of monarchies, okay, because you're going to live under one eternally, This divine monarchy will endure forever and he will never be deposed and he will never abdicate his throne. I'm still struck with the image of Queen Elizabeth II when she died back in 2022. As her body was lying in state there during the memorial in her casket and I believe it was the archbishop, I'm not exactly sure who did it, but there was, the, there was the, the scepter of sovereignty that was set upon her casket. And that man came forward at one point in the service and removed that scepter of sovereignty and gave it to another. Listen, that will never happen to Christ. He will never have the scepter of sovereignty removed. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And one day you and I and every other knee that has ever existed on planet earth will bow before him. Every tongue will confess him as Lord in heaven, on earth, and under the earth to the glory of God the Father. So all authority belongs to God, every last bit of it. And this brings us to our second foundational principle. Number two, all human authority is delegated authority. Every ounce, every dollop, every single grain of authority that exists anywhere resides in God, but God delegates his authority as he chooses. 
In other words, he dispenses that authority to mankind. He doles it out, an ounce here, a grain there, a dollop there. He might give somebody a whole snow shovel full. But it's coming from him. And we see that from the very beginning, don't we? When God, in Genesis 1, delegated authority to Adam, he gave him dominion. And we see that he gives authority to kings and he gives authority to nations. You'll recall Pharaoh. God says to Pharaoh, what? For this very purpose, I raised you up. You want to know why you are who you are? I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the earth. And you'll remember that God did that by putting Pharaoh down and conquering every Egyptian god in the plagues. Perhaps you know the name Cyrus. He was the king of Persia. It was Cyrus who said, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And so it was with Nebuchadnezzar who was humbled to the point that it was until you know that the Most High is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind and gives it to whomever he wishes. You recall those tense moments between Pilate. I don't think Jesus was tense. But between Pilate and Jesus, Pilate says to Jesus, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Jesus was not fundamentally going to the cross because of Pilate or Herod or the Jews. He was going there because God gave authority to bring about God's will in the crucifixion of the Son. God the Father was pleased to crush him if he would offer himself a guilt offering. Daniel, in his great prayer, makes this statement. He removes kings and he establishes kings. So again, beloved, there's not one king, one governor, one general, one policeman, one CEO, one parent, not one person on the planet who has even the slightest measure of authority who has not received that authority from God. And most men, of course, do not acknowledge this or recognize it. They think, like Nebuchadnezzar, that they are the source of their power, but that is not the case. And this is not just talking about people who are in high office, my friends. This is something that comes right to our front doorstep. Are you a husband? You've been granted authority, haven't you? That you might be a sacrificial leader to minister to your wife, to cherish her and to nourish her, to wash her with the water of the word. Are you a father? You've been given authority by God as a steward to utilize your headship for the good of your family, for the blessing of your children. Are you a boss or a manager at work? I tell you, your authority in the workplace is not merely a reward for your diligence and all of your hard work over the years. No, there's a divine hand behind the fact that you hold such a high position. And he's given you authority for that position, for the, the benefit of the, of the business and the blessing of those who work underneath you. You see, you've been granted authority as God's servant to rule in his stead and in his likeness and according to his will. And each one of us, with whatever authority we've been given, have a duty to utilize that God-given authority by benefiting others and bringing honor to God. And that is true for every head of state and every earthly monarchy and every governor and mayor and politician on the planet. And the world, again, does not understand this, but the truth remains. Romans 13.1, a passage we'll look at next week, we read this, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Do you get that? No authority except from God. Positively speaking, we would say it this way, every ruler and every uh, governor and everyone who is in a position of authority 
Well, that has been established by God, which is a good thing to remember as we look forward to November 5th, 2024. It is not your vote. I know you've been told it's your vote, and those of you who live in California, you've already given this up, but look, <laughs> it is not your vote that will de- be determinative in, 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 on November 5th. It will be God's man or God's woman who will be in that office. I encourage you to vote. It's a God-given responsibility. It's a privilege. But we do that understanding that fundamentally it is God who puts every authority in its place. He is absolutely sovereign over who, who rules and when they rule and over whom they rule and how long they rule, all of that. Which then brings us to our third principle. And that is that all delegated authority is accountable to the God who gave it. Every person in authority is accountable because it's God's authority that they wield. It's another way of saying that all delegated authority remains God's. Authority, if you will, is a stewardship. It's not your power for your purposes, but it is his power to you for his purposes. When man was given authority over the earth, he was given authority to rule over the created order. But even in that, we need to remember a couple of things, don't we? Number one, though, though, though we've been delegated some authority over the created order, the earth remains God's, does it not? It does. And because the earth belongs to the Lord... And because he possesses all authority, then the authority we've been given remains his. If I could provide a twist on a famous radio talk show host, it is authority on loan from God. Pastor Forsyth, the one I spoke of earlier who wrote that book, Caesar and the Church, says this, quote, a simple analogy of this type of delegation is renting a car. When you rent a car, you drive it. But if you're in an accident, you're responsible for it. Why? Because it's not your car. You simply had the use of it. It would be your responsibility to repair any damage and return the car in the same condition in which you were given it. That that makes perfect sense, right? God has delegated to us a measure of authority, but the authority remains his, even though you're the one driving it, if you will, And because the authority is his, we're accountable to him for the use of it. And I really like the way Jesus even implies this when he says to his disciples, you remember, they wanted to know who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They were just eager for status and position and power. And Jesus calls them into a huddle and he says, men, you need to understand something. Jesus called them to himself and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, that is the non-believing world, lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. That is the way it is in the world, right? Authorities in this world rule from on top. And they lord it over those in their charge. And they, they drive from behind as with a whip pushing people to do what they are unwilling to do. And they will answer to God for that misuse of their authority. Jesus says, look, men, it's not going to be this way among you. It's going to be different in my kingdom. He says, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What was he saying? He says, man, we don't, we don't lead top down and we don't drive from behind. No, we lead in front as an example and we lead from underneath as a servant. My kingdom is completely upside down from the world's point of view. And he draws upon himself and he says, just look at the way I live. Jesus gave himself for the good of his people. Jesus was the point of the spear. He wasn't putting his people out front for them to suffer. 
No, he leads the way right into it. And this is one of the reasons why I think the world has such a distaste for authority. They've known very few benevolent leaders. There have been very few of those in the history of humanity. It's tough when, and this is what Lord Acton was after, right? Once people get power, they tend to use that power from the vantage point of a self-serving heart to accumulate good things to themselves. They don't care about those they lead point of all this is to say this, you, you, you owe him everything and it all came from him. You were made from, for him and whatever authority that he has given you and me in this life was granted to you for good and for his purposes and we are answerable for the exercise of that authority. I could put it in other words, God retains authority over the way you use your authority. And this is true at every level, from peasant to king, in the church, and in Washington. All authority is God's. He delegates it as he pleases. And everyone who has delegated authority will then give an account for how they use that authority that is on loan from God. Now, we come really to three more principles, but I'm going to lump them all under one head. And that final principle is this, number four, all delegated authority is limited. It is limited. And that makes sense again. All you need to go is right back to the, the analogy with the, with the rented car. The vehicle is owned by a rental company, and they get to set the terms for how you utilize that vehicle, right? They, they tell you who may drive it and where it may be driven and how many miles it, it may accumulate and whether you can smoke or bring your pet or, you know, whatever. The vehicle is yours to use. You're authorized, if we could look at it that way, but the authorization comes with restrictions, with limitations. So it doesn't really matter whether you're the queen of England or the queen of your kitchen. You must realize that the authority that you have is delegated to you and that it's delegated from God and that that comes with limitations by God. So how specifically is Delegated authority limited. Well, three ways. Number one, it's limited in office. That is to say that delegated authority is vested in a person who occupies an office. I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about a position. The President of the United States occupies an office. Again, we're not talking about the Oval Office. We're talking about his Status as President of the United States. He is the President of the United States. He, doesn't, he is not the President of Argentina. He's, he's got nothing to do down there with Argentina because that is not his office. Another person occupies, well, <laughs> at least I think somebody does that office. Last I heard, somebody occupied it. Perhaps God has entrusted you with, with young children. As I said earlier, they are his. But you occupy an office. That is the office of parent. And your title is mom or it is dad. And you have authority, don't you? It's been vested in you, biblically vested in you. You have authority over your children. But you do not have authority over your neighbor's children. They are not yours. And the same goes for the office of a husband. You are the head of your wife, but you, you are not the authority over women in general. God has vested certain authority in the elders of, a ch of the church, but that authority does not reach beyond this local assembly out into other local assemblies. We had, a, we had a, an assembly in, in Auburn that put the elders of this church under church discipline. That's weird. I've never heard of such a thing. That was a violation of this principle. It's not their office. Take a look with me. I don't want you falling asleep. I want you to go to, 
Go to 2 Chronicles. Move. Get some blood pumping. Go to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. We read here of King Uzziah, 2 Chronicles, chapter 26, <clears throat> verse 16. Here's another a biblical example of, of, of the wrong person. He tried to occupy an office that was not his. Notice verse 16, but when he became strong, that is, Uzziah, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to Yahweh his God. And he entered the temple of Yahweh to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah the priest entered after him, and with him 80 priests of Yahweh, men of valor, and they stood against Uzziah the king and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to Yahweh, but for the priests the sons of Aaron, who are set apart as holy to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from Yahweh God. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priests, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of Yahweh and beside the altar of incense. And Azariah the priest and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead, and they hurried him out of there, and he himself also hastened to get out because Yahweh had smitten him. So King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of Yahweh. You see, Uzziah was the wrong person to be performing priestly functions. He was not to do what he did. That belonged to the office of the priest. And there are other examples of this. You might remember that King Saul suffered the loss of his kingship. That was the straw that broke the camel's back because he offered a burnt offering. He had no place in doing that. You might remember Korah who assailed Moses' leadership. He led a coup and he assumed a role not given to him by God. And, and you'll remember it did not go well for him that day or his family. So there are limitations that come with authority. And you need to be asking this question, both of yourself and of other authorities. What is the office and what is the job description, if you will, of that office? What power or authorization is in that office, and where are the limitations? So it's limited in office. It's secondly, it's limited in sphere or realm. And this is closely related to the last, and you'll see some overlap in all of these, but Uzziah was not only the wrong person to be offering a, a sacrifice, to, to be burning incense, being the king, but he was also out of his rightful sphere, wasn't he? He was engaging in things that were reserved for the priests. So every authority has a rightful sphere or a rightful realm, or we use the term a rightful jurisdiction in which to operate. Again, Placer County sheriffs don't have much to do with what's, doing, what's, what's going on in Sierra County. That's somebody else's sphere. They're concerned about Placer County. Jesus taught this very concept himself when, when he told uh, some folks to render to Caesar what is Caesar's and, and to God what is God's. You see, the, those are distinct spheres. And it's very important as we begin to think about the church and how it engages with civil authorities. The governor of a state has the right to do what governors are permitted to do. So y you might look at it and say, well, Governor Newsom has the, the right to, to give a state-of-the-state speech if he so chooses to do that, but he does not have the right to be in this pulpit next week to say what he wishes. That is not his, his authority. That is not his place. 
I missed it, but I'll find out later. <laughs> you see, God has allotted to Governor Newsom the sphere of, of the state of California. He is a civil servant. I got it out. He has no authority when it comes to the church. Last week, we looked at the text with Daniel and King Darius, you remember, who foolishly and sinfully made a determination, passed a decree that no one could pray or petition anyone but himself for 30 days. Otherwise, it'd go into the lion's den. And you remember that Daniel, when he knew what was written, when he knew that the king had signed it, that was the trigger for Daniel. Oh, do you think you can regulate my private devotion? Well, let me fling open my windows, as is my custom, and pray before all of your watching eyes. In fact, not just once, but I'm going to be back here at noon if you want to see me then, and I'll be back for dinner three times a day, as was his custom. He, knee, he knelt on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. He just kept on trucking because the king had no right to make the determination he made. So it was with Daniel's three friends who defied Nebuchadnezzar's idolatrous demand that everyone bow before his golden image. You see, both kings were in, were in the realm of their office. They can pass laws. That's what kings do but they were out of their sphere. They have nothing to do with the sphere of the church. What are the spheres that the Bible recognizes? Explicitly, four. Four spheres of, of earthly authority. To the state, God has given the ministry of protection and the promotion of what is good and right. They are charged with civil order and justice. To the church, God has delegated the ministry of the word and sound doctrine and holy practice, as well as church discipline. And Christ is the head, and the elders and the deacons then serve under him as leaders. In the sphere of the family, Parents have been given the responsibility of provision and nurture and care of those children's spiritual and, and educational instruction. And then in the sphere of the individual, each one of us has been given the responsibility, haven't we, for self-government. We are to lead our lives in a way that honors God. We are to live before our creator in uprightness and in truth. So those four spheres, the state, the church, the family, and the individual. And when these things are all operating in their lanes, things work very, very nicely. What we saw at COVID was somebody crossed the double yellow, okay? And, and we need to talk about that further. But there is order and there is harmony and there is justice and there is peace and men being men, it is not perfect. But when men understand these realms, these spheres, and they stay within them, things work well. The reality is, though, right, it's not always easy to work out for a number of reasons. One of them is you tend to live in multiple realms, don't you? You're a citizen, you're a father, and you're a member of this church. And you can see that there's going to be some some challenges as you begin to work out all of those things. The lines are not always crystal clear. And if you're a parent, you get this. You walk into your room and there sits the journal of your 15-year-old daughter and she won't be home for a few hours. And you think to yourself, where do her rights as an individual conflict with my authority as a parent? Parents have primary responsibility for training their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's true. And I can remember some days in years past when we had some parents who, who really were convinced. They were of a mentality that says, look, I am the father of this house. No one should have any influence over my child but me. That authority has been vested in me 
To which we say, well, you're right. That authority has been vested in you, but the church has also been given the responsibility and authority, hasn't it, for, for teaching sound doctrine and building up and edifying the church. And we want to work with parents in that. Think of the state. It has authority to protect and to promote public health, the well-being of the citizenry. Seatbelt laws perhaps are within that jurisdiction, but what about vaccines? What about masks? The state rightfully steps in, doesn't it, on occasion to remove a child from a physically abusive home. We would look at that and say, yeah, that's right and proper. There are parents who are unworthy of their office, of their station. And we're not going to put up with brutalized children. And so the state steps in to rescue a child from a physically abusive home, but then we bump into the question of who and what defines abuse. Is it okay for them to come in because you've chastened your child for lying to you? You see, this, this is not simple, and you have to engage this, brothers and sisters, not on some shallow level because at some point, there's going to be more tussling and tug-of-war that goes on in this culture over where the lines exactly rest, and we need to work through these things. So all delegated authority is limited to office, it's limited to a particular sphere, and finally, it's limited in extent, in extent. And this is another limitation that is somewhat nuanced, but it is important to understand. An authority might be functioning according to the powers that are permitted by their office and within its appropriate realm, but they might transgress the extent of those powers. I couldn't help but think of, of the Rodney King riots that were going on while I was in seminary. Nobody really questions the office of an officer to, to make an arrest of someone who is driving erratically or to restrain someone who is combative. But the question that was being raised in court was did these officers exceed what they were charged with? Did they exceed the extent of their powers in using their batons? And people will have all kinds of different opinions about that. I could think perhaps of a biblical example of, of Moses who was given authority to what? speak to the rock. He was not given authority to strike the rock, which is what he did. Therefore, he was watching from the outside when it came to entering the promised land. We could think of Israel and the war in Gaza. Most of us probably readily acknowledge Israel's right to self-defense for all that transpired on October 7th. We recognize too, don't we, that war is messy and it is impossible to wage war without the loss of, of innocent life, the loss of citizens who had really nothing to do with this, and we mourn those deaths. But the challenge comes in the question of the extent of Israel's authority. They have power to wipe Gaza off the map with a nuclear bomb. Would that be right? Or would that be excessive? You see, biblically, parents have the right and responsibility to spank their children, but there's a line, isn't there, in all of that? So that is, that is all that we are saying at this, that there, there is an extent, there's a boundary. So think with me in the moments that remain about Acts 3 to 5 as we try to apply these things to that circumstance. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, those who comprised what in that text is called the whole council of Israel, the Sanhedrin, they had delegated authority from God just by virtue of the fact that they were in power. It tells us that. Now, they were false shepherds, and they had sinfully usurped 
that power from Israel's rightful king and Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says of them, they seated themselves in the chair of Moses. But nonetheless, God in his providence granted them authority and they were abusing it. And they ruled in and over the people of Israel, didn't they, from the temple, and they regulated the worship of Israel. But let's ask this question right up front. Who did the people of Israel belong to? The Sadducees? You remember their words, if, if we let this guy Jesus continue to do what he's doing, he'll lead the people to himself and, and we will lose the nation. You see, they got lofty and uppity in their thinking. They, they had missed it completely. Oh, they loved the popularity and they loved to wield their power, but the people of Israel belonged to God. And let me ask you this, whose temple was it in which they resided? You see, you had men assuming an office which they proved unworthy to occupy, though God permitted it for a time, and then they come along and they prohibit the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus, and they were making rules that frankly were outside of the realm of their authority. It was out of their jurisdiction. It was way beyond their rightful powers. And Peter and the apostles understood these fundamental principles, and they stand by the command of God defiantly declaring the truth of God, the gospel, because they had a higher authority. And it was only right that Peter challenged these men by posing the question of whether it was right for him to obey them rather than God. They had taken on God in their pride, and Peter says, I'm with him. And it was only right for the apostles to preach when they were instructed not to, not once and not twice, but even after the third time and the whipping, still they were back at it again. It was only right. And in that process, they honored the risen and ascended Christ. And they asserted his rightful authority over all. They exposed the hypocrisy they exposed the unworthiness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the ruling class in Israel. You see, this was Christ's office as prophet, priest, and king. And this was Christ's rightful realm, ruling his people according to his word and in his temple. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. And the extent of his authority is measureless, it is boundless, it is from sea to sea and from sky to the, to the core of the earth. There's not a square inch in this universe that is not under his authority. All authority in heaven and earth belongs to him and the apostles rightfully said, we cannot and we will not obey you. We must obey God rather than men. And that is absolutely right. It is inspirationally faithful and it is boldly courageous. And beloved, may God help us to understand these things so that we can stand up in the face of tyranny. Let's pray as the music team comes forward. Father, we're thankful that your word is sufficient, it is clear, it is obvious that these things rise to the surface as we consider the issue of authority. You are God in heaven, all things are from you and all things are through you and all things are for you. Lord, the chief end of our lives is to bring you glory and to delight in you. Lord, we thank you that you stand unrivaled on the horizon of history and that there is no one and nothing that can challenge you. You are God Almighty. You are the Ancient of Days. You possess all authority, and Lord, you have granted authority to men, and 
We pray that you would help us to learn these things and to study them, to consider them, to think on them today. And throughout the week, Lord, as we think through all these potentialities that we may face, we thank you for the early church and for the obvious demonstration that they got it. They knew who you were, that you had created all. They cast their cares on you. And Lord, they stood They stood firmly and they stood stood well and they stood, some of them, even faithful unto death. Lord, enable us and give us courage. Take us and make us warriors for the kingdom. Lord, help us to stand firm and to stand boldly and to do so, Lord, submissively, patiently, looking to you, willing to endure whatever may come because of it. Lord, may we never falter in our loyalty as we sang today, prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Lord, we wonder whether we will stand. Equip us by these things we ask so that we might stand, that you might be glorified. In Christ's name, amen.